Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's episode is with Associate Professor Sue Ellen Egan and Dr. Sue Ann Watson, and we are talking about biotechnology and invertebrate conservation. So today we've got uh, Dr. Sue Ann Watson from the Museum of Tropical Queensland, where she's invertebrate curator, and Associate Professor Sue Ellen Egan, who's going to talk to us. I see. He's going to talk to us about biotechnology and invertebrates as well. One of the things that we've been talking about in most of these Q&As is careers and why it matters to know about invertebrates in life after undergraduate degrees. So do you guys want to comment on that? I guess I'm happy to talk about like careers and, you know, career pathways and things. But I think, you know, this question is specifically about you know, the invertebrates themselves. So yeah, um, obviously there's a whole range, I guess, of the you know, occupations that involve invertebrates in, in lots of different sectors. And I guess in terms of working with animals, they're certainly, um, you know, the most ab- abundant kind of and diverse kind of group of animals with multiple cells pretty much right so (laughs) obviously you have all like the single cells and things like the bacteria and the viruses and and things like that and and we're sort of obviously there's growing fields um in those areas but like you know for invertebrates and we've got obviously you know jobs doing research with marine invertebrates jobs um doing aquaculture um with them and you've got the the tourism industry ways of kind of promoting people's enjoyment of invertebrates like including out on the reef so yeah I I guess I'd say it's really wide there's obviously also you know parasites are um huge uh, make up a huge diversity of invertebrates and then you know there's lots of jobs I guess in biosecurity and and the identification um and and treatment of uh, parasite issues as well as invasive species when you of which are marine invertebrates. So, yeah, I guess it's, it's really diverse. It was a bit of a brain dump, yeah. but, um, yeah, we can <laughs> explore anything else in, in particular. Yeah. Um, so it's more than just facts to learn in a second-year course, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess keeping on the theme of the, the lecture topic that we were discussing this podcast associated with, which is invertebrate biotechnology, um, you can see, and hopefully those who are here at least and listening have actually reviewed the lecture. So you can get an idea that um, it's not just about invertebrates, it can be about the application that they have. So innovation around and, and technology around understanding how gaining an understanding of the biology and the diversity and the physiology of different invertebrates can actually be applied to new technologies and new applications. Um, so... I guess in that, I guess, brain space, um, Mm. you could actually think of it as something that's not necessarily about invertebrates specifically, but having a knowledge of invertebrates um, can be something you can apply to other other disciplines, right? So it's certainly an area, I think, that will be growing as we think, think about innovative technologies um, that really, and how we understand more about ecology and the ecology of different ecosystems um, and how they change with, for example, you know, cl- 
climate impacts or human intervention, then understanding how nature takes care of that and invertebrates are one example of that can be something that you know is is a is an innovative place to to start looking for new jobs and um, in in various industries. So Stell has written in uh, in the chat. In the slides for biotechnology, many of the drugs that you discussed are for marine invertebrates. Are there any terrestrial invertebrates that are important to drug production? <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. So there, there is a slight bias there. Obviously, I, I'm a marine biologist as well, um, and I've done a lot of in area marine biotechnology specifically. Um, so in the terrestrial ecosystem, you know, drugs – that's where some of the first drugs such as antibiotics were being identified. Um, predominantly in terrestrial uh, microbes and plants, um, certainly some association with certain insects and, and invertebrates like, so there's certain beetles, for example, that I can't off the top of my head give you exactly the details, but there are beetles that produce um, secondary metabolites that act as defense molecules and in part some of them are produced by the organism themselves but in many cases they're also uh, produced by associated microbes with those insects. Um, one ecological example I guess and I can't remember if that was in this lecture or another lecture or anywhere in particular um, there, there's examples of the classical um, uh, leaf cutter ants that you may have heard of in the Amazon. So basically these are uh, ants that farm for food by going out and cutting up leaves and bringing them back. So those insects, um, they those ants, they actually have to protect themselves, the fungal colony that they're farming from foreign pathogenic or harmful fungi. And they do that actually by carrying around like a little um, patch of um, microbes that are on their abdomen that have secondary metabolites. Um, yes, antivenom, sorry, yes, good good point. There's also like venoms that would be applied. I just haven't got something off the top of my head that's uh, uh, an example of that. It's interesting that we still have to milk the venom from like funnel webs to be able to make antivenom. That's the kind of job you can get into here, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's why you study inverts, the funnel web milker. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get into being a curator at a museum? Yeah. Um, so actually I started out um, more as an ecologist. Um, so I worked at the, um, well, originally from the UK and I studied biology and then um, oceanography and marine biology and then came to work at James Cook University um, in the Centre for Coral Reef Studies. Um, I continued to study, I guess, um, more ecological disciplines. Um, yeah, then uh, yeah, I became aware of the role of in marine invertebrate curator at the museum. Um, and I actually wasn't sure that I would you know, be an exact fit for the role because I'm not really such a traditional, you know, I'm not a traditional taxonomist. Um, but it turns out that they were indeed looking for someone who 
is is a scientist you know not necessarily like a naturalist or taxonomist so a scientist who can bring kind of you know research questions across a range of marine invertebrates and they weren't looking uh, for someone who can work on a very specific field of invertebrates where some some museum roles you know would be okay you're only going to work on isopods for example so yeah I had a lot of flexibility there uh, um, and yeah and applied and, and was successful in getting that position so I guess that's sort of how that happened and I, I didn't expect to become a marine like you know a curator of marine invertebrates in a museum I just sort of set out to do good science and good research um, across a range of topics that I found interesting, including not just invertebrates, but um, I seem to keep coming back mm. to those as they tend to be understudied on tropical coral reefs. So and I was, that's, what, that's cool. I was, I was curious what some of the differences are that you found to working in a museum versus in a university in terms of research or in general. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of differences. Like the main differences I'm sort of finding are the differences between working for a government organisation, which is the museum, and then for a university. So there's lots of extra kind of paperwork and rules and things that take so much longer. And it's really kind of interesting because I still had the job at the university as well. Um, and so I get to really see how both of those are kind of currently through through all the challenges um and I do get to do two lots of paperwork and, <laughs> and things now but was there something kind of I guess specific like are you, you think we are sort of asking in terms of particular the, how the research works at the museum you know versus at the university or something just just genuinely curious about you know branching career paths about staying in academia working in a university versus working like you say for a government organization mm. yeah well actually you know, to me, even though I am, you know, not at a university, the role is mainly a research one. So you know, officially it's about 50% research and then about um, the other quarter is kind of curation and looking after the collections and then the other quarter is kind of media outreach and making exhibitions. So because it's still so research-focused, I think I'm still bringing a lot of the kind of research work and the questions and the job that I do would have done, you know, at the university had I stayed there full time to um, to the museum. So a lot of my research projects are actually carrying over. I've worked out ways that um, they run across both institutions. So that part of my research program hasn't changed too much. I have just added in sort of new bits for new projects with different collaborators. And I have probably done a little bit less of working with sharks or fishes or non-invertebrate things as, as you know, those projects finished, I haven't you know, gone out looking to take students on in those areas and things like that. So that's, I guess, sort of quite lucky in that regard. There is a little bit more, I guess, you know, administration and other non-research things in this role at the museum. So I do find myself you know, having less time for research, which I think is probably natural, you know, in a lot of careers, um, you know, including things like there's more staff management to do as well. So sometimes you know, things can happen unexpectedly. So you do find yourself um, kind of doing more of that management role, which I guess you would as well at a university as a yeah. career progress. So 
Yeah, I think actually for me, even though it is going away from the university, um, it's, it's reasonably similar. Cool. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about in all of the weeks in the invertebrate biology course is the challenge of taxonomy and how difficult it is to identify invertebrates and understand who they are in the mar- in different ecosystems and what they're doing, particularly with all the threats that are going on. Um, how, I guess the question is to both of you, how do you address the importance of identification of invertebrates and then also understanding the system that they're in and how it's changing is is there particular challenges that you see with um with the you know how little we actually do know about the taxonomy uh i i think that sounds probably best equipped but i oh my god i was muted um but i can certainly give my two cents maybe while you think about the question um, uh, look, there's, there's one argument that back in the day uh, it was really important, like very early on, really important to know exactly what things are, give them an exact name and put things in a box. And then there became, I, from my perspective, a, a bit of a phase shift where there was this idea that it didn't really matter what it did as long as it actually solved that ecosystem function. So as long as that that environment, whether that's a temperate or marine uh, marine system, whether it's temperate or tropical or terrestrial system, as long as all the functions were provided in the ecosystem, it didn't really matter if you gave it a name or not. Now, I think we're sort of coming, turning the clock again and looking back and going, well, actually it can matter because as we know more about the fine differences between different, like what might seemingly be the same, look the same, right? it actually can have other other differences with respect to its environmental tolerance threshold or um, how it protects itself from invasive pests or anything like that. And that might be something we can't see on the face of it because its primary role of photosynthesis or whatever is being ticked off. Um, but as we know more about genomics as well, and we can, you know, coming from a microbial perspective, we've now can quite happily go, yep, we can get a bacterial genome, whole genome done within a week less if we need to. Um, when I first started studying, that was like years in the making. Um, and the whole concept of getting whole genomes or any transcript or any omic type information about invertebrates uh, or other animals was not heard of, right? Um, but that's shifted. And so with that, we can actually get a bit better understanding about the diversity of, at that individual level and then maybe having more uh, knowing exactly what that species is and the taxonomy is important. Yeah, that's my ramble sound. But obviously, <laughs> I'm not in the area of looking at all any taxonomy. So, I guess from my perspective, um, there are you know a range of different ways to sort of study things. So you know you've got your ecosystem role, so you're more like your functional traits, and then you've got you like knowing what species there are exactly. I think I guess we're finding it is really important often to know what species you've got. I think the challenge with marine invertebrates is because there's so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of species, like, um, so many still unidentified, that I, it's so hard. We don't really have the time or the, you know, the, the amount of people working in this area to, um, to work on all of these identifications. And of course, we're losing, you know, species and ecosystems at a great rate of knots. So, 
know, I think we're you know, in the reality now where we are losing species before we've even you know, properly collected them, let alone identified them. So that's one aspect of the challenge there. And the other one, I guess, is, is the time taken. Of course, we also have new molecular techniques to help with identification and separating different species. And so they've been really great in recent years and yeah, technology is getting better so we can move more quickly in those areas. Yes, if we also, um, when we're working with species, like we want to think about taking voucher specimens as well because it can be that, oh, well, you know, grab some, uh, some samples of a species, we'll sort of do all these fancy molecular um, technologies, but then actually there are we are like, totally confident in that species that we spent all of this time and money working on is actually that species so if we just if we just take a voucher and we'll have some tissues and um, we've got sort of the morphological specimen there then that's I think you know that's really important as well with the new technologies and the other thing that we can end up with is just that even if we think we know a group really well like for example the giant clams there's not many species about 12 in the world um, recent, even recently, we're still finding that actually there's one or two species that we didn't realise that were there that are kind of cryptic, but they're just within the same range as the other species. It's just no one's really looked that closely. And that's a really quite well-known, well-described group um, that are large and conspicuous. And so, of course, you have all of these tiny, uh, uh, less conspicuous invertebrates that who knows what's going on there. So, you know, it's the area... There's so much work to do that obviously we're going to have to just prioritise key things and it, and it may be that we do sort of choose invertebrates in, in certain groups, I guess, to be the indicator species or flagship species and work there is definitely a challenge. Yeah. Um, you use some really good terms in your answer then. Um, the first one, voucher, spe- voucher specimens. Can you explain to the students what a voucher specimen is and what the process is? Yeah, so I guess, you know, you might choose to work, say you've got a species of snail and you're running some experiments or you're doing some field studies and, and you're looking at this snail species. Um, and then you're going to write, you know, a PhD thesis or your paper and you sort of describe in detail these ecological patterns with the species and it's all it's all really great. Um, but then someone comes along maybe, and I think this kind of goes back to a little bit of what Pat was talking about in her lecture, um, and... And they go, oh, well, actually, you know, we found this like this cryptic diversity or there's these, this other snail and they look really similar. Actually, they look almost identical, but we just have this tiny little notch in the shell that can tell them apart. Or if we have some molecular tissues, we can run some you know, tissues, we can run molecular analysis. And so having that material um, stored in, in a collection is, is a voucher specimen. So... Um, you would they, uh, take all your notes of where you got it from and when, um, and then you would deposit it into a museum as a voucher specimen. And so the museum would be able to look after it for you. So if there were um, ever, I guess, any questions about what it uh, that species was or maybe changes over time, then you've got access to that material in the museum. So that's sort of a, that's a voucher specimen. It's different from a type specimen which is the kind of specimen that is used to uh, describe the species. Nice. The the other term you used was flagship species. Um, can you explain that to the students as well? 
Yeah, so I guess I was thinking about this flagship species. This is something that we're thinking about potentially using um, for giant clams. So they tend to be, there's, um, I guess, names of species that are used in the conservation literature. So you might have an umbrella species or... Um, so, so something that is not necessarily, so if you have a keystone species, like they have a really important role in the ecosystem, but then you might have, I guess, an umbrella species by which protecting that species, you could also protect a lot of other useful species. And then you have species like flagship species that are like big and charismatic, or they might be cuddly. And, it, you know, people are drawn to those. And so by protecting that kind of iconic species, then you can protect others in the ecosystem. So, um yeah, you can look up a whole whole load of those kinds right. of terms in the conservation literature. Yeah. I, I, I think that's really interesting. You said that I've never heard of that term before. But there's a question from someone in the from James. It says, What is the one less mainstream question in marine biology that you feel would benefit from more research on your approaches? And when I was reading that, I was like going, Oh, like I'm I'm struggling because what, what are the mainstream? And maybe I don't know if this is what you were thinking, James, but it was those, it's always been a bit of a beef of mine that the corals, that the whales, that these agnatic species, this, you've called keystone species, right? No, flagship species. The ones that you've mentioned as, I assume you mean by flagship, that the koalas or whatever, that actually draws in the attention, right? And yet, there's so much more out there that's <laughs> probably more important. Um, maybe not of corals, but, you know, as an example, we don't know a lot about those other invertebrates that could be playing really key essential roles in ecosystems that are just not seen because they're not big and they're not bold and they don't draw that attention. So I think for me, I think more research in maybe the underdog species, <laughs> the ones that aren't being looked at, because if I bring it back to the bio, biotechnology as well, we don't know if they're going to be the answers to our problems in the future as well. So keeping that biodiversity, even if it's not cute and fluffy, um, is, is really key. So I feel more research in, into that is, is important. Did you just coin a new term then, Sue Ellen, underdog species? <laughs> realising. Let's add it to the list. <laughs> Underdog species and charismatic megafauna. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's one of the reasons that we were thinking about the giant clams because they're large, they stay in the same place, they do have a lot of similarities to corals. So if we could say protect these just giant clams and it would protect all of the coral reefs around yeah. rather than trying to single out a specific kind of fairly charismatic coral species or something <laughs> like that. So that's sort of one of the things that we put it out in that latest it's, paper that we've got coming. kind of like... It's kind of like how, I don't know if this is still the case because I don't go to these food courts so often, but it's like when McDonald's is put in a food court and it's there and it tracks people, but it's actually, I always thought, oh, but the the other people, I felt sorry for the other like stores that don't get the big line of people lining up for, for Maccas. But then <laughs> I, I think it was argued that they like to be there because McDonald's draws people in, the kids want the Happy Meal and then the um, adults go and, eat the salad sandwich or some pasta bar or something like that so maybe that's kind of an interesting analogy we can draw on get, yeah. get people interested because of the the clams and the corals and the dolphins and yeah 
Nice. So that question, Suan, was uh, what is one less mainstream question in marine biology that you'd feel would benefit from more research or new approaches? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I feel like maybe I should have been thinking about that (laughs) while I wasn't talking. Um, I like the part of the question, James, about new approaches, and I think that kind of links in the biotechnology side of things as well. But uh, I don't know about you, Sue, the changes in technology in the last five, ten years are so hard to keep up with. There's just so many new approaches being applied, which is which is really great for, like you said, being able to get the genome of an organism in weeks rather than years. Um what do you, I guess, um, I just put an angle on James's question. What do you think new approaches are on the horizon in both of your fields? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it's a really good question. Fields being, I guess, for me is more uh, microbiology and symbiosis. So I guess I would think it's, it's more applying the basic skills that we've sort of been developing in that uh, sequencing technologies, um, getting better with metabolomics, so actually understanding what the metabolites are and where they're positioned and, and bringing that in with sort of microscopy so that we can actually physically see where these interactions are occurring. Um, all of that takes a lot more time to develop and devo- uh, to develop. And I think at the moment those technologies are kind of exist but they don't, uh, they're not as widespread or accessible to, to a lot of people because they still involve specialised equipment. Um, the other thing I would say is I think there's going to be a bit of a renaissance coming back to getting into understanding mechanistic details. So a lot of these omic approaches, they've now allowed us to sequence and get lots and lots and lots, lots of information, um, whether that's information on DNA, the um genes that are being encoded by different species or whether it's the proteins they express or the metabolites they produce. Um, And now what I think is trying to get back to the mechanism. So how do we actually understand what they're doing? And that involves much more nuanced experiments, getting back into the wet lab. And I I guess part of me fears, and the pandemic has kind of emphasised that even more, that we've lost a lot of those basic skills. I'm hoping that you guys can still get those skills so you know the ability to go in the lab and do some genetics you know to understand exactly what does this gene do so we can understand what that gene does we need to know when it's expressed we need to be able to maybe knock it out in a model system and see what the phenotypes that are created and that takes a lot of time um it's long research it's not the quick fix get a get a data set and and analyze it um that we've sort of become used to now in our field and so more patience accepting that maybe some studies are going to take longer is, is a big thing. No, the, I, I, it's, a really, it's a really good point. We are really used to the speed at which you can get data when you do things like high throughput sequencing and the challenge of being able to get back in the lab. I'm sure these guys have all felt that in the last two years of their degrees, the challenge of hands-on science. Yeah, um, and working really with important. non-model systems as well. Right, we have we know a lot about the diversity. So getting out and starting to develop techniques and methods to to cultivate mm-hmm. or study 
some of these interesting species that we see that we haven't been able to do. Experimental biology is actually a lot harder than than what it seems at first, you know, to be able to manipulate organisms, manipulate genes and genomes and things like that. It's actually, it's quite, um, it's quite a, a specialist skill. And it's really something both of you, well, all of us have experience in is the, the challenge of experimental biology. You said you, I think that's what you're implying. You see that as becoming more and more important. Um, in terms of how the students can get more hands-on experience in things like experimental biology. Do either of you have any recommendations about what um, what they can think about going as we come out of the pandemic and as we start to get back into labs and um, how do they go out and get that hands-on experience? Uh, I, I think a lot of students, well, I know already there's been a few students who have been actively seeking that, so they come and they they talk to us. So just popping anyone an email and saying, hey, I've, you know, I've missed out a lot in doing experimental lab work. Is it okay if I come by? And and even, even sometimes just like a couple of afternoons a week for a, a month is actually enough to get engaged and get some experience with, with some lab work, um, sort of break down some of that barrier. But I, I'm not sure if places like museums and things like that are taking internships and and how you would feel about students, again, because of the pandemic, who may not have the basic skill sets already. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.